Previously on Hacker Valley Red. Today, we're switching gears and introducing the first ever season of Hacker Valley Red. It's going to be epic. We talk about what red actually can do for organizations and what the, the path of somebody in the red side looks like. They're putting people in glass boots and they're hacking people live over the phone. And I was like, well, Ev, I don't know how to code. I don't think it's for me. You know, I, I don't think I can learn it that fast. And he was like, oh, there's no code. You just hacked the person straight up. No code. I don't think we're going to see the dynamic change until we can really normalize, like I was talking about earlier, normalize the idea that you have to break things and it should be a respected, in-demand, highly compensated skill set in society. I would say the only difference between what I do in a red teaming engagement and what a criminal does is the fact that you're paying me to do it. This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This season is sponsored by Risk IQ. Risk IQ assists organizations by continuously monitoring, extracting, and analyzing intelligence that they've been collecting for over 10 years. Risk IQ has created a comprehensive intelligence graph of the internet, and it's been used by over 100,000 analysts. Risk IQ's platform powers threat investigations and can help your organization map, monitor, and shrink your attack surface while proactively detecting threats in the wild. If you want to learn more, check them out at riskiq.com and thank them for also being our season sponsor. What's going on, everyone, and welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. In this episode, we've brought in Alyssa Knight. She is an author of Hacking Connected Cars and a recovering hacker. In this episode, we get into the weeds of talking about the attack surface, APIs, hacking cars, and even content creation. Alyssa is a true expert in what she does, and I cannot wait to share it all in this episode. So let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again And this time around, on this episode, we've brought in a recovering hacker, also a content creator and author of Hacking Connected Cars. Our special guest today is Alyssa Knight. Welcome to the show, Alyssa. Thanks, Ron. I couldn't have done a better intro myself. (laughs) (laughs) Alyssa, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. You are obviously somebody who is incredible at producing content, but also a heck of a hacker. Would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know this, but I started out in the BBS scene back in the 90s, you know, 2,400 baud modems and upload-download ratios. That just sort of led me into phone hacking, or which is called phone freaking. So really kind of started out as a breaker. Then came the world of dial-up internet and VT100 shells and IRC. And that led me to being a penetration tester, hacked into a government network at 17, got caught, arrested, 
charges were dropped on a technicality and worked for the U.S. intelligence community in cyber warfare. And the rest is pretty much history. But, you know, one thing that's different about me from other penetration testers is I like to focus on the more labyrinthine areas of security that other people don't really fully understand. Or I don't want to be just another voice, right? I want to discover and be a part of something that very few people understand, which is really what led me to hacking embedded systems. So if you look on my YouTube channel, I've got videos on hacking CCTV cameras, hacking API servers, hacking banks through their APIs, and hacking cars. So uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I, I recently published a new book on hacking connected cars. And now I've got a new contract with Wiley to write a new book on hacking API. So I, I just, you know, yeah. So there's a spoiler there. You know, everything's becoming connected now. Everything from our, you know, from our stoves in our kitchen, and it's not just cars. And and I wanna, I wanna find all the vulnerabilities in them so we can make them better and stronger and more secure. So it sounds like you've really always kind of had this fascination with hacking and looking underneath of the hood for technology. But back then, you know, looking at BBS bulletin board systems. How did you get started with that? I've always wondered kind of what is the the story for, you know, the OGs that kind of took <laughs> that route before hacking was even cool. Oh, that's the first time anyone's ever referred to me as being OG. That's, <laughs> I just, I've, I've always been kind of a nerd. Um, so, yeah. How did I get into BBSs? Well, I ran one. So I, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. And there was a big art scene there. I got really big into ANSI and ASCII, you know, the four page scrolling ASCII color block drawings of half naked women as ANSI art. It just got really big into the art scene. And I built my first computer. It was a 486SX25, had my 2400 baud modem. And then I was at a computer store one day and saw that that newspaper that they used to publish of BBSs and their dial-up numbers and just started dialing into them and then decided, hey, you know what? This whole thing about being a user on other people's BBSs, that's so yesterday. I need to be a sysop and start my own board. So I downloaded Oblivion, downloaded Renegade, gave it the good old college try. It, it's starting my own BBS. And in between my mom picking up the phone when I had callers on my board, it, it actually was pretty successful. Wow, that's incredible. So take us ahead just a little bit to where you actually started to do this as your your profession. How did that kind of come about? Sure. So I was, at the time, I've always kind of been a serial entrepreneur. So I sold my first company when I was 17 to a public company. And wow. then my second startup I sold when I was 27 to, a, I'm sure you've heard of Endace out in New Zealand. I, I sold my second startup to them started a venture capital fund. But very early on, my first sort of startup was a web design company called Winter Rain Graphics. And I was running a Linux web server. I want to say it was Red Hat. And it was around the time that the land attack or teardrop attack, the vulnerability in Linux kernels, if you remember that, came mm -hmm. about. And the people that I was actually renting my office from, the ISP, were teardropping my web server. So the people that I, the ISP that I was actually renting office space from for my web hosting company were actually teardropping my, my web hosting server. And so I didn't know and, and, you know, freaked out, went to Barnes and Noble, grabbed the first book I could on cybersecurity and, and the rest is history, I guess. I, you know, it was out of a necessity to keep my web server up and running. And that was kind of how I got introduced to the whole world, I guess. 
And when you were you were saying when you were 16, you you got caught up in a little bit of hacking and beat yeah, something, there was, right? Yeah, there was there was some playing around when I was a teenager when I was in high school. So I hacked a government network. I Trojan the login binary. So anytime you type boot it, the password prompt, it dropped you into a root shell on the server. Wow. They were waiting for me at school when I arrived. And as soon as I walked onto campus, they rushed me and I could just feel that something was different that morning. And yeah, so got uh, arrested right there on my school campus and they interrogated me behind closed doors without my parents or lawyer there and the district attorney didn't want to touch it. So I was very lucky, ended up you know, pursuing a career in cybersecurity and of course, wanted to be a breaker versus a defender. I, I did get into incident response and forensics, but you know, always kind of been a breaker at heart. I've always believed that what could be built by humans could be broken by humans. So I, I, it just led me to this path of then wanting to focus, not just be one of those other hackers that pen tested Windows IIS web servers or Apache Linux servers, but somebody that actually focused on something that a lot of people really just didn't understand. And that for me was embedded systems, IoT devices. So I, I actually led the cybersecurity assessment teams at San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station. So I got really big into hacking SCADA systems, became a certified SCADA security architect. I've always kind of had a, this, this passion for finding vulnerabilities in black boxes. I published the first vulnerability on hacking VPNs and spoke about it at Black Hat Briefings in 2001. So I've always just kind of been hungry for finding vulnerabilities and things that were really arcane and really hard to understand. What would you say it is about your personality that causes you to look at problems in such a way? Because I haven't been much of a breaker in cybersecurity, but I've always been a lock picker, like as, as long okay. as I can remember. And I find it fascinating, you know, the puzzle of the lock. And do you take the similar approach to embedded systems, to cars, or do you think about things a little differently? You know, I think it was, for me, always sort of up against competing up against this ghost, right? It was my whole career, I've always been told, you'll never be as good of a, of a hacker as me because you don't know how to program. And I've always thought that that was the most ridiculous thing in the world because some of the most epic vulnerabilities that have ever been published, you didn't need to understand a single line of code. You know, so that that's not to say that that hackers that do know how to program are bad or not as good. There's a place for everybody. But I think that was really the impetus for me was trying to prove everyone wrong, trying to prove something that just because I didn't know how to program didn't mean that I couldn't be a vulnerability researcher. And, you know, it's still, it's still a religious debate to this day. I get trolled all the time on posts about from people that felt that in order to be a real hacker, you have to be a programmer. And I just don't believe that that's true. I, I feel like adversaries want us to single people out and not diversify because it makes us weaker. It makes us weaker. And I think there's a place for everybody, whether you're picking locks or finding vulnerabilities in connected cars. You know, a lot of the times you don't even have access to source code. So why does being a programmer even matter? Right. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. When I first got into cybersecurity, I kind of heard the same debate. It was like very frustrating, especially for me, since that was kind of all I was hearing at every single turn. Like, you got to learn how to code this and that. And then I learned how to code and I got more obsessed with like providing the solution rather than 
actually breaking into things in the first place. So I think it definitely skews your mind when you kind of just look at it from an engineering perspective. Yeah, I agree. You know, and if you think about it, like I said, if you're targeting a connected car, even in an authorized sanctioned penetration test, I worked with some of the largest car manufacturers in the world and tier one OEMs. I never got my hands on source code. I've requested it, but I never got my hands on it. You know, a lot of times you're throwing the uh, pre-compiled binary into IDA Pro or looking at something. You know, there's just something. I've always been a packet monkey. I've always loved living at layer three. And you can find, you can figure so many things. I can find so many vulnerabilities just by looking at packets. You know, I mean, like I said, I published the first vulnerability on hacking VPN appliances. And everything that I did was at layer three, layer two. I didn't need to know how to code. You know, when you look at things like that, when you look at the network layer, the network traffic, you really have a wide variety of things you can look at when it comes to the attack surface. And I'm sure over time, you know, looking back 2001, looking at VPNs, all the way to now looking at APIs, you've probably seen the attack surface change just so much. What do you think has been like the evolution from your perspective? Has it been like desktop, mobile API? What is? What do you think of that? I think it, the evolution has been less physical, right? So we have companies that are to this day still continuing to decommission their data centers and remove 1U pizza boxes and 2U pizza boxes off of racks and move things to cloud workloads. Now we've, just as people were trying to figure out how to secure virtual machines inside a hypervisor, now they're trying to figure out how to secure Docker containers, right? So everything's virtual now. Things that were never previously connected are connected now. I I think what I love about cybersecurity is it's perfect for the ADD poster child. It's it's a great job because if you think about it, you, you just you're doing so many different things from one day to the next and things change so fast and so rapidly that it's perfect for someone with ADD. In order to succeed, I think, in cybersecurity, you need to be able to move quickly and keep up. And you're almost sort of programmed, no pun intended, but in order to succeed, to be able to do that. And when you're doing those pivots and you're looking at these different modalities of cybersecurity, what made you gravitate towards cars? Oh, that's a good question. So it's the whole fake it till you make it thing. We had been awarded a pretty large contract with a with a client that was kind enough to really take my hand and shepherd me through the engagement, teach me about auto mechatronics and everything that I needed to understand in order to apply my knowledge of hacking to something like a system on a chip, right? Or a telematics control unit or an electronics control unit. It was that one quintessential perfect client that just in Germany sat down with me and and explained how everything within the in-vehicle network worked. And being able to take my experience, 20 years of experience and breaking other things and applying it to electronic control units inside a car or an infotainment system. And, you know, a very patient customer. So that was really it. It was it was learning how to hack cars came on the heels of winning a contract to hack cars. So I, I got to, I was, I was one of those very fortunate circumstances where I was basically getting paid very well to learn how to do something new. I would love to hear some of your thought process on when you're learning about these things, it sounds like you're not learning through access to source code. You're not learning through 
all the information that someone would have internally at these car companies. How do you kind of break down that problem and conceptualize and, and get started with hacking into cars or any type of thing? Well, the same modus operandi applies to targeting a, like a Windows IS web server, right? Let's let's take the penetration testing execution standard, for example, or the PTES, right? It's a framework, it's a model, and and the same that that model can be applied to a TCU or a head unit inside a car the same way it can be applied to targeting a, co- a company's internal network. You're trying to understand what are all the potential attack vectors or ingress points into the car, into either the TCU or the head unit. Okay, so once you've got your communication interface, what what is reachable? What What can you communicate with? What will react or respond to stimulus? And from there, just identifying vulnerabilities, exploiting them. And one of the, whether you're talking about hacking a car or a web server, and whether it's 1997 or 2020, it's, it's always been the same. It just doesn't seem to change. It's trying to understand a full asset catalog of everything that's in your system so you can secure everything that's in that system. And, and one of the biggest reasons behind vulnerabilities that I found or being able to achieve a foothold on a device is because the company didn't have an asset catalog of everything running inside of it. Didn't know what was reachable. Didn't know, you know, what was running, what version of what, you know, it's, it's, it's like we over, we have as humans, we we're always rushing to innovate. We're always rushing to make things better or smarter. And it's rare when we take a step back and say, okay, what, exists within my system? What is everything that exists within my system? And and how is it talking? And was it what is it talking to? You know, those basic basic asset catalogs for me has always been the attack surface. I think that's 100% right. When you really understand what you have, not only from like a, a nodes perspective, like what computers you have, but right. then also your technology and your dependencies. Right. What would you say that companies get wrong in, in that realm? Besides the fact that they don't know what's in their system, where would you recommend that they even start to sort of like pull this into a unorganized program? I think for me, it's charting, diagramming. Like I'm, I'm a big believer in Abraham Lincoln's give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend four hours sharpening my axe. It's preparation. When you're building, especially something as complex as an electronic control unit or any system in general, it's having that diagram that charts out the directionality of traffic, what component is talking to what component within the system. How are they talking? What ports, what protocols? What are the individual little components inside of it? What are the communication interfaces? You know, it's one thing to be inside the car and, you know, have physical access to the ODB2 port or, you know, some physical access just reaching in there with a screwdriver and jarring something in order to gain physical access to it. It's another thing when you can reach it remotely. You know, I got a negative review on my book because one of the reviewers, mentioned that, hey, look, you know, there's this other book on hacking cars and that talks about the CAN bus and that's, you know, the Bible to hacking cars. And then there was my book, which only focuses on the TCU and head unit. But 
That's the thing is like, I've never cared about the CAN bus. There are some amazing vulnerability researchers out there, Robert Lealy and Tabor, who focus on the CAN bus and can do amazing things. But for me, I that was the point of the book was focusing on the Telemax control unit. It's the device within the car that speaks GSM and connects the car to cellular networks. That is how you can hack a car remotely. But this reviewer completely either didn't understand that or didn't understand the the premise of the book. The premise of the book is just what it what I named it, the hacking connected cars. I care about the vulnerabilities that I can exploit from the comfort of my living room in my pajamas, not the vulnerabilities that I have to be able to have physical access to inside the car in order to exploit. In order to jump on that canvas, You've got to be inside that car. You have physical access to that car in order to to exploit anything on the can. With the vulnerabilities that I identify in my book and talk about and have always talked about was what you can exploit remotely. Because to me, if you put a brick through the window and climb inside the car, it's already game over. Yeah. Why even hack it? (laughs) Exactly. That's pretty interesting. And I'm sure this is going to be a nice prelude for your second book. That sounds like it's on hacking APIs. Yeah. I'm sure... Now, mm. more than ever, we're seeing mobile apps connected to cars. Now, these cars are integrating with APIs that are all using a common language that you're going to much easier be able to speak to. What are your kind of thoughts on what exists today with APIs and cars and where we're going in the future? Well, Ron, that's an awesome question. I'm glad you brought that up because it's a contemporary issue that I don't think the world sees as a problem right now when it really is a huge problem. And that's, if you look at the recent report that came out from Akamai, more than, was it 86% of the traffic on the internet passing through their CDN is API traffic, 86%. Ron, that means that more than half of the traffic on the internet passing through CDNs now is application to application traffic, not human traffic. So... Mm. You know, you have applications, you have devices. Everything is communicating with an API. Our our connected cars are communicating with APIs, right? Everything, mobile apps. We are in an API world. We're in an API-first economy. You know, you've got the Bezos, the famous Bezos memoir now, where he said you can pretty much polish up a resume and look for a new job if you don't develop your applications around APIs moving forward at Amazon. And I think hackers follow the victims, And the point of hacking today isn't defacing websites like it was in the 90s when we talked about the BBS scene. Now it's about monetizing data. Data is worth more than oil. And where is that data sitting? Where are those oil, virtual oil fields? They're behind APIs. Hackers know that. So they're learning how to hack them. So if you go to my YouTube channel, I was I had a client, a very large bank that gave me permission to film while it was hacking their bank and publish a video on it to show the dangers of what happens when a bank doesn't secure its APIs. I could change the PIN code of any bank customer. I could wire money or move money in and out of funds without authenticating. It's the most critical problem that we face today is the securing of APIs. Yeah. And you know, from all the research that's out there, you'll see things like, oh, you can find leak credentials through GitHub. That's a very like engineering way to find creds. But just by looking at the app, looking at the Chrome extensions, you know, there's just so many goodies when you look at those types of places. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's funny, you know, it's 20, was it um, one of the, I got sort of branded as this API hacker in 2019 when I downloaded 30 financial services mobile apps, reverse engineered them and found hard-coded API keys and tokens, AWS credentials, S3 bucket credentials for some of the largest banks in the world, like billions of dollars of assets under management, not small community banks. And it's scary that in 2019, 2020, we're still hard coding credentials and hard coding tokens and passwords inside mobile apps. I don't know if it's the developers not realizing that the apps can actually be decompiled. I don't know if they think for some reason that the apps, because they're sitting on our phones, we can't look at the code, but it's so trivial to pull an Android app off of an Android device and even an iOS app and decompile it, reverse engineer, and find everything that's been hard-coded inside of it. And you would be shocked if you saw the things that were hard-coded in a lot of those apps. I think if anyone was listening to this, you would be hard-pressed not to understand how someone with an offensive mindset can actually contribute to cybersecurity. But I feel like there's a, a bit of a disconnect between the communications from the blue and red quite often. Mm. What do you think people really get wrong about red teaming and, and red engagements altogether? Oh, goodness. Yeah. I always felt it was very disjointed, right? The the whole teams. And you know now they've got this whole color wheel where there's the purple team now. And I think I agree with you. There is definitely this sort of siloed approach to vulnerability management with the red team, the blue team. For me, it's always been vulnerability remediation, right? All too often, whenever running into clients, the common theme was, hey, why don't you come back in a year? Because we're still remediating vulnerabilities from the penetration test last year. Companies can't keep up. Patch link doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how great of a distributed patch management system, Microsoft, whatever it may be, fill in the blank here. Patch management is still an issue and companies keeping up with it. PCI tried to implement into the DSS that you have, what was it, six months in order to resolve or remediate a vulnerability upon detection. And for this CVS score and above, companies still aren't doing it, you know, within that. So it's, I think vulnerability remediation is the biggest problem. It's it's the breakdown between red team, blue team, red team finding the vulnerabilities, blue team working with server admit, you know, server ops and network ops to get these fixed, and then going through the whole process again, afraid of breaking applications with a patch. I think the problem fundamentally lies in really just a systemic issue across companies of patching vulnerabilities. Like we're still seeing eternal blue. What most recently we had several, as you know, I'm the group CEO of Briar and Thorn, which is an MSSP. And we had clients that were still getting popped with vulnerable Citrix servers, right? And it was what, three, four months, five months after the vulnerabilities were announced and patches were made available and companies still not patching. So it's a real problem. And I think until we get vulnerability management down, until we get backups down, we're going to continue to see issues with things like ransomware and organizations paying out millions of dollars because of a ransomware infection. Like, how is that still a thing in 2020? Instead of just restoring from backups, how is it still a thing that organizations are not backing up with with Kubernetes environments and virtual machines and all of these other technologies that's cloud for supporting backups? 
that organizations are still not backing up and having to pay out ransoms. Yeah. And if you got popped by Eternal Blue, that's probably a three-year-old, four-year-old publicly yeah. disclosed uh, vulnerability that you're still rocking out with. Yeah. I mean, you know, and yeah, I, we're, we still do regular penetration testing. Eternal Blue is still a problem. We still see it come up on on vulnerability scans. It's just, I think probably if if I may... I'd like to expound on a previous question you asked about, you know, what what are the the leading costs? I think another big problem is not just patch management, but it's also asset management. I can't tell you how many times how common of of a theme it is for organizations to tell me, "Oh, it was never clearly defined who was responsible for patching our CCTV cameras." Like IoT devices, right? Like security thought that that was facilities job. Facilities thought that it was security's job, right? So I think asset management, not knowing what you've got deployed out there and who's responsible for patching it, it's basic risk management, right? I think the biggest mistake organizations make is they jump right into penetration tests before doing risk assessments. You need to know what assets you have. You cannot protect something you don't know you have. In a risk assessment, you're creating an asset register. You're doing calculations to determine what assets, what risks are over a business acceptable level of risk. All of those things I think need to be done well before an entire penetration test is done. I hope people are listening to this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So much. So I have a question and this is, you might laugh a little bit, but play along. You've hacked into a lot of things. You've seen all types of vulnerabilities in your mind or your best sense of imagination. What does an unhackable device look like? One that's off. <laughs> because I can't even say one that's not connected anymore because you've, you've obviously seen those same cables, I ha- USB cables that I have that install keystroke laggers on the machine when you plug it in. I think the machine that's off. Here's the thing, you know, I've even had conversations with people that didn't even know a specific device was connected when it was, you know, and not realizing that it was phoning home. I think... There really is no such thing. This is just my two cents. You can laugh at me or key my car when I say it. But I <laughs> I think it's my belief that we have entered a time now where marketing teams need to stop saying the word prevention because we've, I believe, we've entered into a state of only detection where we need to simply stop giving black eyes to people that have been compromised because it's going to happen for every organization, even cybersecurity companies, right? Even security product vendors. I think we need to stop burning them at the stake and start looking at the fact that the breach can't be prevented It doesn't matter because if there's humans involved, it doesn't matter if you have a $500 million security budget. If a human can give you access into the network by clicking on something, you will get breached. And I think what people need to understand is now, instead of talking about prevention, we need to talk about lowering the mean time to detection. I think that is where we are at now where we need to stop saying that it, you know this product can prevent that or this product can prevent that. I think it's trying to detect the adversary on the network faster 
and lowering that MTTD and MTTR for mean time to response. That's what we need to be focused on. Not what technologies can prevent the breach in the first place. What technologies can help me catch the adversary more quickly? I think you're absolutely right. What would you say would be the highest leverage thing that a company could do, either from a technology perspective or a process perspective, to actually shorten that mean time to detect? I do have to say this. I think machine learning has come really far. I think it's not mm. just, a, I, I don't think it's just marketing hype anymore. You know, when you look at the capabilities of these solutions out there, like, like network detection response solutions and near solutions that kind of got us away from, I say, legacy signature based detection systems like the old snort days. I just really feel like ML has brought us a lot further. And I think organizations that can adopt as much ML-powered solutions as possible, whether it's EDR powered by ML to get us away from legacy antivirus solutions to ML-powered NDR solutions, I think they really do work. I think our mistake from the very beginning was trying to catalog all of the potential bad things, the known knowns versus trying to detect deviations from what we know to be true or know to be constant because we just can't keep up. We can't keep up with all the different malware strains and malware variants. Like how did this not become a thing before, like a lot sooner that we can't keep up with all the antivirus dats and we can't keep up with all the different variants. I mean, how many variants of SQL Slammer Worm were there? You know, I mean, I just feel like the train was late on this, but, you know, obviously we had to evolve and it takes time to invent and reinvent. But I think if organizations can adopt more ML powered solutions, also hack their own network, hack their own applications hack their own devices, not by the people who are drunk on the Kool-Aid that are internal, but actually hiring outside people to do that work. All that is very important. Something that comes to my mind, you know, when lowering the mean time to detection and mean time to response is, and this could be wrong. I want to hear your, your thoughts on it. But my thoughts on it is you somewhat have to kind of go towards this digital transformation and adopt some of the APIs, really double down on leveraging cloud solutions or solutions that are API driven, but that also leads to opportunities for an attacker like yourself to abuse those APIs and ultimately find the keys that I've accidentally left somewhere. What are your thoughts on that, on digital transformation and going more towards the cloud solutions? I think it's definitely a different security plan. It's a, it's a different strategy in the cloud. You have the basic tenets of cybersecurity that you need to apply to cloud workloads, but you also have concepts, you have cloud technologies that not everybody fully understands. Like point out how many people in the room understand what the hell Elastic Beanstalk is, you know, beyond just, <laughs> you know, beyond the food. My hand's um, not raised. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, and there's still a lot of people today that are executing on, the, on their digital transformation strategies that had no idea that the cloud is a shared responsibility model. I still run into CISOs today that think that AWS is doing their patching for them or Azure is doing their patching for them. It's just understanding that the concepts are the same, understanding what you have so you can secure them 
and staying on top of patch management and backups. But I think, you know, with APIs, we're adding an we're adding a new layer of complexity. Like for example, people are securing APIs with the wrong technology. They're using web application firewalls to secure APIs, thinking that that's how you secure APIs because they're like HTTP servers when they're not. You know, they don't look for the kind of things you know, like BOLA and other types of attacks on the API, OWASP API top 10, that web application firewalls don't know how to detect and look for. So, for example, just because I have Chris Cochran's key, you know, API key doesn't mean that I should be able to download everything from the backend database. It's that whole authentication versus authorization. I just think there's different layers of complexity that digital transformation adds to something that we were still trying to figure out how to understand and that's securing our on-prem assets. And now we have to figure out how to secure those in someone else's infrastructure that where the assets are constantly moving because they're virtual and you know now they're in Docker container. It's, it's, it's complicated. Wait, how, how did you get my key? Yeah, like, hey, where did you find that? About that. <laughs> we, we touched a little bit on communication, right? Communication with the blue, maybe even communication with a client. I want to talk a little bit about Night TV and talk a little bit about your live streams because I feel like there's probably a parallel between the reports you actually give to your clients and also the the entertainment value that you produce for your listeners, your your viewers and things like that. Why how did you get your content so crisp, so clean and oh. what makes that important to you? Oh, thanks for the compliment. I've always been an artist like as long as I can remember I've done charcoal drawings. I for a time in, in my former life, I wanted to go to the Art Institute and become a graphics designer. I've always been a very artistic person, I think, which is another reason why I didn't want to be a coder, why I didn't want to stare at lines of code all day. I'm a very visual person, very artistic person. So because I'm so creative, I knew when I set out to start Night TV, do my YouTubing, do my podcasting, do everything that I'm involved in, in visual and written content. I have to give 200%. It's got to be, you know, if, if I'm going to be a YouTuber, I have to have a 6K black magic cinema camera because God forbid I shoot with the DSLR. I have to do it with a cinema camera. You know, I can't just have a, a Yeti mic. I have to have a Shure SM7B and the no preamp and Roadcaster. And I unfortunately suffer from having to do things at 200% or, you know, over deliver instead of it just being good enough. And I guess with night TV, you know, I kind of fell into this, right? I never woke up one day or said, you know, when I grow up, I want to be an influencer. I want to be a content creator. I got this new job as an industry analyst at IT group. I was writing white papers for vendors. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. People were paying $30,000 to read something that I wrote. And it was neat. And it seemed like people actually wanted to listen to what I had to say. It's a remarkable moment when you realize people actually care what you have to say. And that's kind of when I started the YouTube channel. And if you think about it, actually, Chris and Ron, my following is relatively new. I, I mean, when, in the beginning of, I want to say at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, I only had 
And I think the Finnovate podcast, Breaking Banks, mentioned this. Let's see that someone in the audience said, wow, she's only got four followers on Twitter. She's about to blow up. And, you know, it's... Oh, wow. And so, I mean, that was at the beginning of 2019. And now you look at today, you know, I just passed the qualifications to become, to join the YouTube partner program, to be monetized. So my audience, I think, is around 70,000 now. So if you think about it, it's just, it's so much in such a short amount of time. But... Thank you for for the compliment on the quality of Night TV. And for me, I didn't want to just put out content. I didn't want, and I know that this is a cardinal sin in publishing videos because everyone, every YouTuber is always telling you, just put it out there, just publish. But I didn't want to do that. If I was going to be a YouTuber, if I was going to put videos out there that were going to live forever on YouTube, I wanted it to be cinematic. I wanted my night TV episodes not to just be a video about con- with content. I wanted it to have DreamWorks style trailers that started the video out. I wanted it to be, you know, as cinematic and as much of a visually pleasing experience as possible for the viewer. Because, you know, anyone can go anywhere to read a blog or read a white paper, just watch a video. I just, I've always wanted to stand out. I've always wanted to be different. I didn't just want to be another voice. Love that. You know, I I feel like we kind of parallel there. Me and Chris, we really are considerate to whoever's listening or or watching our content. We want to make sure that it's really going to be the best experience for them and also the best for us. We want to kind of mutually meet our our audience there. And I'm sure whoever's listening right now is like, wow, you know, you've done a lot of things throughout your career. For anyone that's interested in getting started with being a breaker, being someone more on the red side of the house, what would be a good place to start for them if they were to start today? Yeah, that's a good question. I get, you know, I put out a couple of videos on this. It's a probably the most common question I get. I would say back in the '90s when I started, there wasn't there wasn't even securityfocus.com. Now securityfocus.com doesn't even ex- really exist anymore. There wasn't a YouTube. There wasn't securitytube.net. Today, people wanting to get into cybersecurity have so many resources available to them. They have influencers. They have YouTubers. They have people that put out stuff on Twitter. You have bloggers. There's, we are inundated with so much information today that it's, it's almost like there's too much information. It's just too much. Where do I start? I think for me, I've always kind of told people, you know, go out there and study for things like the CISSP without the intent of getting the certification, right? Like just reading the CISSP PM common body of knowledge, studying for the OSCP. Don't set out with the intent or mission of getting the certification. Yeah, if you're going to do it, fine, take the test, get the cert, great. But just studying for it and retaining it is so much more valuable. You know, I've interviewed many, many people for a security analyst job in the security operations center who had every cert in the world from Cisco, but couldn't tell me the headers of a packet, couldn't tell me what the ninth byte offset of the IP header was. All of these things that they should have known and being able to construct or deconstruct packets in their head. I think, you know, don't get caught up in this certification mill. Study for things like the CSSP and try and retain as much of that as possible. And then figure out where do you want to niche yourself? Do you want to be on the blue team? Do you want to be a red team? Okay, if you want to be on the red team, look at the OSCP. Um, Download 
purposely vulnerable applications like Hack Me Bank. There's purposely vulnerable API servers you can download to hack at that. Learn Kali, learn the tools that are that come with Kali. I just think there's so many tools available to people today that we didn't have the luxury of when I was starting out. You know, all we really had was IRC and hope we ran into somebody that would give you the time of day. But a lot of it was on your own. And I think that's a problem. And I won't get into the whole generational millennial or, or Gen Z debate. But, you know, I do have a lot of people that just reach out to me and say, hey, can you mentor me and tell me what I need to do? And, you know, instead of me reading a lot of these papers and I was like, there's so much out there, can you just tell me what I... That's the thing is like, I feel like all too often people want that shortcut. They want that in a bite-sized tweet. They want to know how to become a $250,000 a year pen tester, but not have to put in the hard work of reading and not have to put in the hard work of studying or, or learning. They just want someone to mentor them and, and teach them and tell them exactly what they need to go do in order to be that. And I think that's the wrong approach. I, you know, read. It seems like it's such a dying art form these days is reading. I love it when I meet somebody that actually likes to read books. You know, I, I just feel like everybody wants to see it in a video or in a TikTok video or a tweet. It's just, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's you know, it's going to take a lot more than that. It's going to take grit. It's going to take a lot more than that. I said it once. I'll say it again. I really hope people are listening to this episode. Alyssa, uh, thank you so much for getting on the mics with us. This has been amazing. I'm sure companies are going to get a lot from this. Individuals are going to get a lot from this, especially people that are looking to get into to the field. If people want to stay up to date with you and all the research and things you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? I would say subscribe to my YouTube channel, watch the Night TV playlist, look at the different playlists I've created up there for hacking BL smart locks, hacking cars. I've got a playlist pretty much for everything. I'm starting a new video series on building elastic in the enterprise. So, you know, there's just a lot of, I, I publish a new video live stream and blog every week. So follow me on YouTube, follow me on Twitter at Alyssa Knight. That's Alyssa with an I and connect with me on LinkedIn. But I mean, the pleasure was all mine, Chris. It's, it was great talking with you and Ron. And it means a lot to me that you guys would invite me to be part of your story. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'd love to have you back sometime. And for anyone that's listening, we'll make sure that we drop all of those links and resources in the show notes. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Chris.